fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are continuing our miniseries, Squeaky Clean Do-Gooders, covering all the films in the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels series. We will fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Wade? How are you doing? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well indeed. How are you? I, I am doing very well as well. And I'm especially doing well because today we're honored to have a special guest. Uh, she's an actress, a recording artist, a badminton enthusiast, but is perhaps best known to our audiences for directing the 2019 the 2020 off 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 broadway revival of a christmas carol um which is especially pertinent to this film because an actor from this film also starred in a christmas carol it is laura bennett (laughs) (laughs) how are you doing laura that's what's that what's that the sound of my styro sludge Ooh. Okay, always trying to turn this into an ASMR podcast. Today's episode brought to you by Styros. I'll put it away now, but I just wanted it as part of my introduction. I will layer it into the superlatives (laughs) next time. Thank you. Uh, Laura, we'd like to take this opportunity to crown you the current reigning champion of Cinema Bums, because at three appearances you are now the guest who has been on the most okay you hear that guests you better get your claws ready your knives out it has nothing get with this it has nothing to do with the fact that i do live with both of you and more to do with the fact that i am (laughs) the best I would agree. I would agree with that. The best guest. Best guest. The first official member of our three timers club. Okay. Do I get a t shirt? Another <laughs> you one? Get to hold on- <laughs> Another. You get to hold on to the crown until someone else takes it. I said, that's right, listeners. There are t shirts. Okay. <laughs> Email us at cinemabums at gmail.com. No. Someone else gets all of those emails. That's where all of our fan mail has gone. <laughs> To someone else. <laughs> I'm sorry. Email us at cinemabumspodcast at gmail.com. No, that's not it. <laughs> okay. It's cinemabumspod at gmail.com. All right. Well, Do you think I should have said podcast? Is podcast clearer? Well, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not here to judge. I just can't remember the name. Laura... Remember the name. Laura, speaking of that, have you remembered any of the other names of movies in this series? Do you know? Have you watched anything else in the Dirty Rotten Scoundrel series? I did, kind of. I watched Bedtime Stories with you two, perhaps you recall, but I did mm-hmm. fall asleep. <laughs> I did. So I didn't actually watch more than the first 20 minutes and probably the last 20 minutes. Mm. And I did sing a song from the musical version um, the spring of my senior year at college, but I didn't know anything about the show. So you hadn't seen this movie before? No, I had not. What song did you sing? It was called Nothing is Too Wonderful to be True. 
which is a really wow. wordy title. Do you, do you know which character from this movie was sang it in the adaptation? I think it's Janet. I think it's Janet's oh. song. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Cool. Wade, had you seen this movie before? I had not. I had seen none of the films in this series before starting it. Okay. That's perhaps why you allowed us to go along with it. <laughs> yes, I think we've learned a valuable lesson about screening the movies before we announce the series. But um, that's fine. You watched this movie as a kid, didn't you? I watched this movie all the time as a kid. I love this <laughs> This is so good. Yeah, I I watched it a bunch. I think my dad thought it was really funny. And he would always like get comedies, whatever comedies my dad thought were funny. And my mom thought were like mildly appropriate for us who is like what the screening process was on movies that we would watch when we lived on the boat. So yeah, so this is in that this movie, the one that we are talking about today is um, called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It was released in 1988 it is a movie that is about two con men uh one of them played by steve martin the other one played by michael kane and they are in something of a competition a a gentleman's game if you will a bet is made about who can uh, win the most or who can scam the most money off of a rich tourist lady it is almost exactly a remake of the plot of bedtime story it is just way better paced and way better shot and way better acted and and like the jokes are punched up so that they're actually jokes so it's just like overall a better movie uh this is getting into my editorial view of this a little bit and then at the very end the woman that they are trying to scam turns out to have been pulling a long con on both of them reveals herself to be the true mastermind uh, con person and walks off with the grand prize and then at the very end in a fun little stinger shot uh, they all team up to fleece rich tourists from America as a little three part uh, scam trio kind of like us fun. it is kind of like us it did remind me a lot of us when I was watching it <laughs> who would be who well I would be Janet <laughs> Which uh-huh. one of you would be Michael Caine and which one of you would be Steve Martin? I mean, one of you guys could be uh, Janet. One yeah, of you guys could be you Janet. You don't have to be Janet. Yeah, you don't have Let's to be Let's just Janet. personality. Uh, sheer wit-wise, just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like Laura might be Steve Martin. <laughs> that was my first thought, too. I love him, so. Sort of like the wide-eyed wonderment he has in this movie. Okay, okay. Now, Wade is certainly classier and looks better in a suit than i do so in that for in that respect i would go with him as uh michael kane's character but i don't know about that. on the other hand i'm not sure i have that sheer star power that glenn headley does and i think wade might have a little bit of that as well so i think you could play the demure <laughs> oh do you mean me like the thing uh, that she's playing yeah. at the beginning oh, it's so good it's so good because <laughs> it's like it's like a send up of all of the women in the original in like the 1962 mm. one in like this really interesting way. Cause she's like acting it in parentheses. She's like not really doing that. She's like doing that. But another part of her is watching the whole time. It's so she rocks in this. <laughs> okay. Before we get too, <laughs> before we get too bogged down in just love for Glenn Hadley, because we could go on and on and on and on. Wade, what are the quick stats? 
The Quick Stats, indeed. This film was directed by Frank Oz, very accomplished artist. You may know him for his other films as a director. The Dark Crystal, Little Shop of Horrors. Ouch! What About Bob? (laughs) You may know him as an actor for his performances in The Blues Brothers, Trading Places, or Knives Out. As the lawyer who reads uh, The Will in a recent <laughs> film appearance. That's so cool. And, of course, you may know him as the original voice and performer of the characters Fozzie Bear, Ow! Animal, <laughs> Sam the Eagle, Grover, Cookie Monster, Bert, Yoda, and, indeed, Miss Piggy. What a list. That's right. The original Miss Piggy directed this film. <laughs> Only she could. So that's Frank Oz. Much love for the man. The writing credits, you've got Stanley Shapiro and Paul Henning, who are the guys who wrote Bedtime Story. Still alive when this movie came out. They get a writing credit, but I'm pretty certain it's just for the the original script. I mean, they have a screenplay by credit, Mm -hmm. but I do not think they contributed any new material to the script. All of that was done by Dale Lawner, mm-hmm. who uh, this movie has a really interesting path to production, and he's sort of the guy at the, the middle of it. He also wrote the movies Ruthless People, My Cousin Vinny, and Love Potion Number 9. Wow, I've seen Ruthless People and My Cousin Vinny, which are both, I think, classics of that same genre that I was talking about just moments ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a score by Miles Goodman. Who did, so not the songs, but the incidental music, the score Mm -hmm. for Little Shop of Horrors with Frank Oz, uh, Footloose, and a personal favorite of mine, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Uh, A little appearance by some nuns in this film as well, which I enjoyed. This film, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, runs one hour and 50 minutes. It is 11 minutes longer than Bedtime Story. Do we have any thoughts about the pacing of this film? Well, I mean, it certainly didn't need to be 11 minutes longer. (laughs) (laughs) Because the first one already felt so long. Bit slow there. Bit slow. But I feel like that just kind of comes a lot of times with the territory of older movies. But I guess the first one being in the 60s feels like it's appropriate for it to be that kind of long, dredging, like slow pace thing <laughs> comedy you know the the comedies in general were much slower um not much action going on but i think with it being in the 80s it feels like it should be a bit faster it still felt way too slow for me in general yeah i mean i think it is a much better paced than the first one i would agree with that and i think it is like it is i hear what you're saying when you say that it is slow but i also think that it is like paced the way that 80s movies are paced. You know, it's paced the I feel like a lot of those movies just like take their time that same way. Anything that's under like two hours is still like a pretty short movie, honestly. But it didn't feel like under two hours to me. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I wanted to fall asleep again, but I knew that I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but the ending really picked up. Like, the ending was good. Like, the last third. Yeah, I feel like the structure of it is so weird. Like, I don't think that it lends itself to being well-paced. Because it sort of is, like, switching what it is so frequently. Mm -hmm. And at seemingly random points. Like, they aren't... 
I checked like the third act of this movie starts 40 minutes into the movie hmm. when there's like an hour and 10 minutes left still. Hmm. And so I think because of that, like it's hard to latch on to sort of like, what are we getting towards? Mm-hmm. If you're talking about the bet being proposed, that's at forty the 45-minute mark? Yes. Uh, yes. I think it's when the, it becomes the sex bet that we move into the third act, hmm. though. And that's at the 82-minute mark, which would fit hmm. just perfectly. Would you agree that the bet, when they first make the bet, is the third act of bedtime story? Yes. Which is sort yeah, of yeah. what I was basing it on. Yeah, which is where this movie like goes and gets more interesting, too. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking of the quote. I heard this from Topher Payne. I'm not sure who originally said it, but it's that like, once you tell an audience where you're going, they will stick with you through everything. Uh And I think it like takes probably until that like 45 minute mark for you to Mm. understand where the movie is going. Hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I also thought a lot about planes, trains and automobiles, which is the movie Steve Martin is in the year before this. Oh, wow. Uh, the John Hughes movie. And I would say, like, also the biggest criticism of that today is that it's a little too slow. And that movie is, like, ten times faster than this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this movie was released December 14th, 1988, by Orion Pictures, mm-hmm. uh, which was a major studio at the time that closed in 1999, mm. existed from 1978 to 1999. Mm. Uh, Some of their most notable pictures include Amadeus, Dances with Wolves, and The Silence of the Lambs. Damn. Okay. It's pretty weird. There were something sort of on the level of like a Warner Brothers or a Universal or whatever that we have today, but they just didn't stand the test of time for some reason. That's crazy. I couldn't find any budget information on this movie. Hmm. Try as I might. I looked at the films surrounding it. So Little Shop was $25 million, mm-hmm. And What About Bob was $40 million. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine a good deal of What About Bob is Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. But Steve Martin was probably getting a lot. So I don't know. It's probably safe to say that it's somewhere in the $30 million Okay. territory would be my guess. But we do know that it made $42 million, yeah. which is $95 million adjusted for inflation. Okay. A decent success, okay. a Christmas movie, okay. too. It was also critically liked. Uh, it got a 68 on Metacritic to Bedtime Stories 54, so much more liked than that. Critics at the time loved Rupert, and there were a lot of thoughts, uh, a lot of reviews mentioned that the film peaks there. And definitely this film's, like, cultural footprint. Like, when I searched for this movie, there was a lot of Rupert content coming up is like the first thing i saw so that was like what stuck with people at the time uh-huh. this movie was awarded michael kane was nominated for best actor at the golden globes wow. for his performance he lost to tom hanks in big yeah. and my review quote is from vincent canby at the new york times who writes Line by line, the dialogue isn't all that quotable, but there is consistently funny life on the screen. In this season of lazy, fat, mistimed and misdirected comedies, exemplified by Scrooged and Twins, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is an enchanted featherweight folly. Wow. <laughs> well, I do have one very quotable line that has stuck with me. But I guess mm-hmm. it's only one, but it's so funny. It's, um, now you were saying you don't think the poor should be allowed in museums. 
<laughs> it was just like a quick take to him saying that. And it was so funny. <laughs> I have that one written down as well. I've got, I've got him saying, it is better to be truthful and good than to not. <laughs> I've I've got written down this is from the butler to be with another woman oh, I, is, I had this one too. to be with another woman is to be French to be caught is to be American so maybe the script just needed time you know it needed time yeah. for our generation to watch it because I think it stuck, sticks with us <laughs> okay this is the time where we like to ask our guest and everyone else and honestly, if you want to answer this at home, please write us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. And not all of those other things. He's got it. Flop or bop, Laura? Uh, I've been stressed about this question for this particular movie for the last 24 hours since I watched it. Not to be long-winded, but I do feel if I had grown up watching this movie, it might, like hold true to you know i might really appreciate it a bit more but i think being introduced to it now i think that it is a flop oh no i feel so bad but i think one third of it is good and i think at least two thirds of it would have to be good for it to be a bop so i guess (laughs) that means it's a flop but i feel bad about it because i love steve martin you don't have to feel bad bad about it you didn't make it i do they tried so hard the acting was good. Steve Martin is 170% committed to this role. It's ridiculous how how like how hard he is selling it, and especially in the scene where he's like walking out of the wheelchair. Oh yeah, that part's like the good. acting in the parentheses in there is like he is like it's ridiculous, and <laughs> he sells it so much better than Marlon Brando does. In, in that. Yeah. So I feel like the bits that Steve Martin was playing were amazing and were perfect for him. But I feel like the actual character, when he was just in conversation with Michael Caine, when he was just himself and not caught in some sort of ruse, I feel like Mm -hmm. that character was not big enough for him. Mm. The actual man that he was playing, Mm. Freddy, was not a big enough character. And I feel like a lot of times in conversation with Michael Caine's character, I can't remember his name. What's his name? Lawrence. Jameson. Lawrence. Jameson. <laughs> Lawrence Jameson. <laughs> um, I feel like when they were just in conversation with one another, it felt a bit like Steve Martin didn't really know what to do with himself because he wasn't playing a big character. But in mm. the moments where he was allowed to be Rupert or the guy who was like lame, you know, the, the the moments where he was allowed to have these big characters that Freddie was playing, I feel like he really succeeded and was really excellent and had great comedic timing. But I feel like in the parts where he was just playing Freddie, it was a bit awkward, not big enough. Yeah, I think he feels a little mismatched because of that. Sometimes when he's just Freddie, he does this sort of like sweet, innocent, wide-eyed sort of thing. This sort of like, wow, you guys really got it over here, like this sort of deal. And then you're kind of like, oh, is that the guy? And then other times he's very sort of Mm -hmm. like standard man of the 80s when he's like, way to go. Yeah. Another one for the paycheck. Yeah. You know, he he, I'd never realized how much Steve Martin looked like Harrison Ford until this movie. And then I kept seeing Harrison Ford in him all over, especially like that guy. It felt like part of who he was was like a Harrison Ford guy when he was just like the two bit grifter, you know, Mm. he's so tacky 
like that's the other thing that like that's the reason Michael Caine wants to take him down is because he looks at him at the beginning and like what's he blowing the money on is like a cheap pinstripe suit that's got shorts on it and like so he can go and take pictures in a bathing suit with a hot girl on the beach with the money in the shot like that's he's like gonna go and like do that and like michael kane is just like disgusted by that sort of use of wealth let me uh drop a little factoid on you about that beach scene it was shot twice in the cheetah print bikini we see for the american version and as a topless beach for the european version are you telling me <laughs> never mind but <laughs> listener you know what to do move to europe <laughs> essentially wow wade flapper bob i too feel very conflicted i felt the same way about mistress america where i strongly feel that this movie is not a flop or a bop there's enough stuff that i do genuinely like about it that i don't think it's a flop There isn't enough to make it really a bop. Like, I would never recommend this movie Mm, to anyone. mm -hmm. But if someone was like, have you seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? I'd be like, oh, yeah, it was kind of fun. And I would, like, talk about it. I would like talking about it. Mm -hmm. But I would never be like, anyone should watch it today. I think the stuff I love Mm -hmm. about this movie Mm -hmm. is it as an adaptation of Bedtime Story. Mm -hmm. I think it is so smart. Mm Mm-hmm. And I felt strangely vindicated because I think truly every single note I had about the weird <laughs> writing and scenes and structure of Bedtime Story is changed in this. Right. And so, like, the experience of watching it, I was like, oh, that's so smart to change that. That's so smart to start this character here, mm-hmm. to take out this stuff, to reframe all of this, to pay it off. Mm-hmm. Like, I love all of that stuff. And I love... Glenn Headley, I think she's the best performance in the movie Mm -hmm. by far. I love her in general. I think the most damning thing about it is that it's so slow. Like, it just plays too slow for a comedy today, in my opinion. And I also think that it's more of a chuckle movie Mm -hmm. than a laugh-out-loud movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like a riot. Mm -hmm. It's like a warm, sort of chuckly, polite comedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think for that sort of movie to be as slow as this movie is is particularly damning. Oh, I, f- I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Because if you're going to do an Oscar Wilde play, you have to keep the jokes coming every line. Yes, 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 yes. I got you. You could take 30 minutes off of this movie mm-hmm. by getting rid of the scene where he's improving names in the jail cell for five minutes, <laughs> yeah. which isn't really funny, yeah. and then just take out like transitions and dead air. Okay. Like, you wouldn't have to lose a single line of dialogue. You could take 30 minutes out of it, and it would be way stronger. That's fair. Man, I bet I bet in that European cut, uh, that's the way they do it. So the <laughs> listeners should definitely go check that one out. <laughs> I mean, flop or bop for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Uh, I think this is... I still think this is a bop. I think it's a very... It's, for me, it's a very calming movie to watch. Mm. I haven't watched it in a long time. But it is like that gentle comedy thing where it's like oh, it's some stuff's going to happen, but it's really not going to be that high stakes at all. Like, pretty much just charming um, for most of it. Pretty silly. It was exactly what the doctor ordered this evening. Uh, (laughs) So, I don't know. Uh, I I really enjoy it. I think all three of the leads are giving pretty hilarious performances in different kinds of comedy and that's mm-hmm. and that's fun 
that they're all like kind of doing a, a little bit different thing. Um, I think the the whole like putting on the Ritz montage where Steve Martin is trying to learn how to be Michael Caine and is just like does not get it. I love is that. So it's just so wonderful. Like all the cuts of them just walking and him trying to move like him and (laughs) Uh lean against the post and be a cool guy. And like he comes out and does the performance and he does it very awkwardly at the end. Like even at the end, Mm. it's like not great. And Michael Caine claps, and then the other guys realize, oh, we're supposed to clap. I mean, it's, uh, (laughs) I think it's very, I think it's very charming. (laughs) Those sorts of parts of it are like some of the funniest, where it's just like those guys and Glenn Hudley like doing funny stuff. You know, he trains so hard to learn how to be proper, (laughs) and then he gets cast in the role of Rupert immediately after. He never once tries to be like Michael And I was watching that, and I said, he just worked so hard. And then they threw him in a dungeon to play this horrible character. Can you guys... I was very confused about this. Is Andre actually a police chief? I think he is actually a police chief. I, I had questions about this at first, too, because I thought he was just a guy who was pretending to be a police chief. But yeah. I now think that he is actually the police chief and that he's paid off. That would make sense. So in Bedtime Story, it seems like he's he just pretends in that one scene to be the police and they take him to like a jail cell yeah. that Lawrence just has and there's no one else there. They're just pr- trying to pretend yeah. to convince him that he's in jail. But in this one, there are other people in jail. Yeah, it seems like this is an actual legal thing that has happened. But then I was like, and is they're he act- actually Cause, and because he has other cops who like arrest him at one point and bring him up in handcuffs. Mm. So I think he really is just the head of the police. He's just completely paid off and friends with uh, Lawrence. That makes sense. that would also explain why he gets a bigger cut of it than what's his name Ian McDermott's character. Yeah, that would also explain why that character is sort of split into two mm-hmm. with Andre and also Ian McDermott. Yeah. The rare non-Star Wars film appearance from Ian McDiarmid, who plays Emperor Palpatine. He is so good in such a small role in this. (laughs) He is very good in like five minutes of screen time. This movie gives us what Star Wars never could, where the camera zooms in on him and he says, Welcome to hell. (laughs) I love him so much. He's so cool. All right. Little digression here, but I will never forgive the rise of skywalker for the bs that they pulled with him come on if you're gonna if you're gonna resurrect the emperor and then not give him something interesting acting wise to do that is a sin worthy of being blown into little pieces by force lightning energy that you're trying to use to resurrect yourself but then it's too much yeah how many more performances are we gonna get from that guy yeah come on he's already 90 or something how quickly are they gonna make the next trilogy and get him back in it like don't give him that uh no didn't you hear he's coming on for the mandalorian season three probably all right sorry that has been our star wars cast um for this evening all right another thing i love from this movie steve martin's realization when he realizes that uh michael kane is a con man and he's he puts it all together because he's on the plane with Fanny and he like puts it all together and it takes him longer than it should 
but it like it dawns on him and you see the whole thing and it's very funny and then he's like in on that laura you're a big steve martin fan aren't you yes i am put me on the record as being a huge steve martin fan how did how did you feel about his performance in this one I love everything he does, so that's why I wanted to be on this episode, just for mm-hmm. him, truly. I think it was not his best, but I do think he, as always, truly commits to these wild characters and is great at it. I think it is a good performance. I Like I said before, I'm not sure if his Freddy character is fully big enough for him, but mm. there are other outlets for that character to do really fun stuff. The Ruprick stuff to me was super disturbing and it was very upsetting to me to see Steve Martin do that bit. Although I think, I don't know, it's just so hard. I don't think I was comfortable watching one of my favorite actors portray that character. Yeah. Yeah. But I do like him overall in this and I like his style. I like that pinstripe suit with the shorts and the sandals. Oh, my God. Oh my <laughs> it's a good God. look. I like the black cardigan that Michael Caine wears mm. when he's sitting outside at the beginning with the like white collarless dress shirt underneath it. I don't know if I'm allowed That's to say this, cool. but there's a lot of DILF energy from the both of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. We can keep that in. No one knows what that means. <laughs> how, how old would you guess the three leads of this movie were? Glenn Headley was 31 or 33, I think. Steve Martin was like 37. Michael Caine was 53. That's your guess? Yeah. I have no idea. I have no idea. (laughs) Um, Michael Caine is old. (laughs) Is my guess. (laughs) Because he's old now. No offense, he was wonderful. (laughs) My guess. Here are my guesses. Michael Caine, 60. Okay. <laughs> Which would make him a dinosaur now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Steve Martin, ageless. Glenn. Glenn Headley. Uh, 32. Okay, pretty close, pretty close. Steve Martin is 43. Oh my gosh. That's pretty yeah. crazy. He looks really good. <laughs> Sir Michael Caine is 55. I'm not far off with the 60. And Glenn Headley was 33, which is interesting. Martin, so Martin's sort of at like the height of his comedy film roles Mm -hmm. because he starts off as a writer and then a stand up. And then his film roles sort of start in 79 with the jerk. His like, (laughs) which we will not even discuss in any capacity, (laughs) this podcast. His breakthrough is sort of Three Amigos in 1986. Which is him and Chevy Chase and Martin Short. And that's the first, like, gigantic comedy hit. Uh, Then the year after that, the year between these two, he does Roxanne, which he writes, which is his, like, modern Cyrano de Bergiac. And he does The Plane, Trains, and Automobiles with John Candy, which is really wonderful. I'd recommend it to anyone. Uh, But this is sort of the end of it, because then in 91, he does Father of the Bride, and then he's in the dad phase of his career. Cheaper by the dozen. That's right, yeah. Oh, God. They're great. (laughs) They are. I grew up on them, you know. I haven't watched them in a long time, so they might not be great now. I one time had a falling out with my whole family over one of them. Uh oh. That's how it goes. <laughs> what happened? You did you think it was a flop and they thought it was a bomb? Um essentially here's what happened. <laughs> you know that frog in the first one that, that dies? Yes. 
everybody thought that was hilarious. I was all sad. And I was like, I can't believe I live with these monsters who would laugh about this. That's pretty messed up. I'm sorry. Yeah. Obviously, I'm still pissed about it. Sir Michael Caine is indeed a dinosaur, as you said, because he breaks out in the 60s. If you want to really feel old, he was best friends with John Lennon. No way. No way. His most famous early roles include Alfie, The Italian Job, and Sleuth. Three movies you might know for their remakes, which are all old at this point. (laughs) All of those movies are like 20 years old in terms of the remakes. But this film is just two years after getting his Best Supporting Actor Oscar Mm. for Hannah and Her Sisters. Wow. Wow. Which, in a true flex, he was unable to accept in person because he was filming Jaws the Revenge. Okay, I love Jaws, but I've never seen any of the sequels. I did not realize such a prestige actor as Michael Caine (laughs) was in any of them. We gotta watch it. We gotta do it. You think he's playing Jaws? Absolutely. I'm back for another bite. (laughs) Is that your impression of Michael Caine playing (laughs) Jaws? Is the shark's I'm, name Jaws, or did you just... I'm Jaws, and this is the revenge. <laughs> I'm Michael Caine, and we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> That's the shark saying that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm really confused by this it's, now. It says, why do we fall, Master Shark? <laughs> to learn to pick ourselves back up again. And our beloved Glenn Headley, uh, this is her first film role. No way! Her first lead film role. She was a Steppenwolf. Wow. Uh, yeah. She joined Steppenwolf Theater in 1979. She was a theater actor. She was in The Philanthropist, Balm in Gilead, and Arms in the Man. Balm in Gilead, my dude. Uh, she was married to fellow Steppenwolf member John Malkovich. Until this same year when she divorced him for having an affair with Michelle Pfeiffer. (gasps) Wow. Yes. Uh, But this was her breakout role. Her next film role was Tess Trueheart in Dick Tracy, who you will remember, Emmett, was my very first MVP on this podcast. I do remember. In our unreleased trial episode about Dick Tracy. Release the Tracy cut! She's also known for Mr. Holland's opus and her role in the TV show Monk. She passed away in 2017. Mm. So sad. She's incredible in this. I wish she had had so many more years of incredible performances. As do I. Mm. <laughs> All right. Okay. So this so this is an interesting this is an interesting uh it's an interesting movie for this particular discussion here. Who do you think Laura is the protagonist of this film? Skip. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Laura says that uh, the dog Skip, only visible in uh, that one scene in the lobby, is the protagonist. Moving on to for, wait. For being a three-time guest, I was completely forgot about this question until i was sitting here going i i'm now nervous for two questions in a row unprepared for flopper bop unprepared for protagonist and you know i should have read the email more carefully to remind myself fully what's the point of all these podcast guest appearances if you can't even answer the bloody question i'm gonna say janet all right janet yes you won't you don't think so right you don't know Ooh, who's the protagonist? I don't know. It's Janet, because women are the superior race of women. What? 
<laughs> Please, can I? <laughs> <laughs> okay, would you care to hit that again? Yes, I would love to. Okay. The protagonist, I believe the protagonist is Janet, because the moral of this movie um, is that women are smarter than men. That's why she's the protagonist. Okay. What do you think she wants? <laughs> to outwit these sleaze balls. All right. I can dig it. Wade, who do you think the protagonist is and what do you think they want? If you're going to ask me who the protagonist is, you're going to need to do better than Brooks Brothers. That is a that joke works on so many levels. Okay, but but for real, man. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think it's Jameson. Oh, okay. And I think it was Freddy in the other one. Okay. And I think it's a smart switch. Okay. I wish the movie did a little bit of a clearer job of establishing that the reason Jameson is taking Freddy so seriously is because of this threat of the jackal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That he sees, like, this bumbling guy. And I also love, okay, it is so, 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 so smart to get rid of all of that 30 pages of Freddy junk that's uh-huh. at the beginning yeah, yeah, yeah. of Bedtime Story. Mm-hmm. And the first time we see Freddy is through Jameson. You are watching Jameson watch Freddy, mm-hmm. which I think is really smart in in telling us how to feel mm-hmm. about Freddy. I think it's clear that, like, Freddy appears as just, like, a fop. Mm-hmm. But Jameson is like, the jackal is out there, he's coming for my turf, Uh and it's probably this guy. That's why I gotta keep him around, that's why I gotta keep my eye on him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And through that, he unwittingly, I think, makes Freddy much more of a formidable threat. Right. Like, he is the one who sort of does the, like, self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of turning... Freddy into the threat, and then, of course, the jackal. The jackal is Janet Colgate, mm. uh, <laughs> which he realizes at the end. And at that point, like, Freddy is too much of an institution because of him, you know? Mm-hmm. But I do, I do think that he is the uh, protagonist. I hope this isn't ageist of me, but having mostly seen Michael Caine in modern movies, I was a little bit concerned going in about seeing him as a sexual figure mm-hmm. because the the first film i feel like is much more of a sex comedy like mm-hmm. bedtime story yeah i think plays up sort of like the sexy comedy like this movie is not sexy at all no it's maybe a little bit more like forward about the sex than they were in the 60s but it's not like this is not like porkies you know, mm-hmm. is there were lots of sex comedies in the eighties. Right. This is not one of them. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I think they kind of wisely take the sexual aspect out of Jameson a little bit. Mm. I also think they like clarify his philanthropist thing in a really useful way. Mm. Because that whole montage where it gets into him like running a socialist society. Mm-hmm is like so long and strange and feels sort of like a betrayal of how the movie wants you to think about these characters Uh in bedtime story. And so they take that out, but they explain, I think it like the revelation is when he's like, all of my people are old and rich and corrupt. Mm -hmm. 
Like, he screens everyone before he takes advantage of them. Right. So that doesn't make... It's not, like, a Robin Hood thing. He's not giving this money back to the poor. Right. But he uh, he has, like, a moral code about what he's doing, mm-hmm. which Steve Martin doesn't. Uh-huh. And I think that is, like, sold in a much more clear way. Okay. I also want to say Glenn Headley's character. I want to say Janet... But I I don't think it is her. I think it's like her movie, but I don't yeah. know if she's the protagonist or something. She's you know? kind of what's at the same time what's stopping them. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because she is the thing that's in their way, but they don't know it, and we don't necessarily know it. Yeah, she could be like their foil or their antagonist. Yeah, but kind of in a very not obvious way i could almost make a case for it being freddy because he's the one who learns the most like he kind of like learns how to be a con person of that caliber and then gets completely like he's the one at the end who still feels the most like a foil for the audience of like yo you poor dumb thing like we've been three steps ahead of you the whole time and i feel like probably we follow him a lot more than we follow we follow michael kane in the beginning but then we follow him a lot more towards the second half. It's it's tough to say. But it would also be much harder to say like what he wants. Because I think the motivation of like being rid of the jackal is a much clearer motivation for Michael Caine's character. Or even for Janet's character to say, like, I want to take in these these two guys who are trying to scam me. I'm going to scam them. But couldn't he just, like, I don't know. He wants to become a better con man. Which is kind of a weak thing to want, but it is, like, his goal. Yeah. I'm split between the three of them. I lean towards it being Freddy, which means that we really kind of have a three-way split on who we think it is, which I think is fitting, because it it does really feel like it's all three of their their movies in a big way. I think they all have... Maybe they each have an act. Like, it's Michael Caine's first act. It's Steve Martin's second act. It's Glenn Headley's third act. But it ends on Kane too. Like the emotional, the emotional does end on payoff yeah. of the movie ends up with Kane and Headley. Martin kind of comes in as like the funny foil at the very. That's end. true. Yeah, and then when she comes back, it's between her and Michael Kane, and he's just being dragged along again. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned how serious Martin is playing the characters, uh-huh. which I also think is smart because I think him playing that character straight. Mm-hmm. is, like, so much more formidable of a threat mm. than Brando ever played it. Oh, yeah. Because Brando was just, like, hot, but he's not committed to that character, no. so you don't get the sense of danger. And then, like, seeing the first time Steve Martin comes in in the wheelchair where he is, like, playing to his strengths, uh-huh. you're like, oh, he might win. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. He is... He, and because he is just, like... So he is so committed to all of that weirdness and the sadness that he's got going on. And he's not, I mean, he is doing it a little bit, but he's not doing that same just like weird faces that <laughs> Marlon Brando is doing. Like, oh. No, he's doing full physical comedy, full body yeah, physical full comedy. So no, good. like no holding back whatsoever, which is <laughs> why he's great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so it's so amazing. It's a he's electric anytime he gets to do like just over the top stuff. The scene where he has to pretend he's in the wheelchair going down the stairs. He's just uh-huh. banging <laughs> it as he goes down the stairs and then <laughs> falls so spins the wheel of the wheelchair uh-huh. and flops next to it. Just incredible <laughs> commitment. 
Yeah. <laughs> Drags yeah. himself to the ocean with his elbows because really he so, can't so walk. Funny. And then there's that great moment where she leaves to go get the doctor. And he's like, wait, that's not what I, not what I want. <laughs> and realizes, oh, I got to shift. I've got to change my tactic. This works too well. Who would you say is your MVP other than your protagonist? And I think we're going to take all three of the leads off the board for this. No. Yeah, I think we have to. I guess to. if we all picked one, yeah, uh, that Dang. makes it much harder. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, should I say one of the sailors so one of you can have the other ones? There's not many <laughs> other characters. Oh, I, I definitely got it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say those sweet, sweet sailor boys and their wonderful accents. <laughs> Truly oh, amazing. Yes, indeed. That was really bad. Yes, indeed. They were great. They were on screen for only a few moments, and they were truly hilarious. But they they also felt 88 in a way that a lot of the movie doesn't, you know? Yeah. In terms of how they update it to for the modern times. Yeah, it does hmm. feel like a very old plot in the old storyline. Yeah. Trying really hard to be modern. Trying really hard to be set in the 80s, but it feels like so much older. Yeah, the modern elements are sort of just like women wear tight dresses and have different hair now he, and we're he can like get aware of that he can get his phone brought to him at the pool <laughs> oh yeah that's true she gets that's his true. soaking wet meat hooks all over and you're <laughs> yeah. just sitting there asking if they had waterproof phones yeah i was too. what's going on that's also where my head was at his hands are huge i'm not sure if anybody got a look at michael Caine's. how could you not so much of the movie <laughs> yeah. close-ups of his hands yeah crazy wade who's your mvp <laughs> i mean it is glenn headley and then probably the sailors <laughs> let me wait because i know i wrote a couple down the emperor Mrs. Reed? I don't even remember who Mrs. Reed is. Oh, yeah. She's so good. She's I who... wrote here, Mrs. Reed MVP, like the bowing. Oh, now I remember who she is. Yeah, I'll go with her. Damn it. That was going to be mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that scene is really good. And that that's a scene where they smartly are sort of starting to see the things unravel. Mm-hmm. And she's very good. And I just like that she bows her way out of it. It's, it's very funny. funny. It is very funny. funny. I mean, who's your MVP? Well, you stole her. Uh, <laughs> I really do. I love Lynn Headley in this. Can't can't stress it enough. She's amazing, and her outfits unbelievable. The outfit she's wearing at the end. Okay, the one at the beginning is not good. No, it's not. No, uh, when I say unbelievable, I I mean I can't believe people <laughs> let her wear those most of the time. But the one at the end is is pretty amazing, and the hair yeah. is on point. Jeez, I'm gonna go with Ian McDermott. Dearment, mm. Dearment. Ian McDiarmid, Dearmid. Dearmid. as as Arthur, as Arthur. I just love him, and how many, as, as we say, how many movies do we get to see him in where he's not covered in CGI? Uh, <laughs> just love it. It would now be a good time for me to unpack some of the behind-the-scenes drama. Oh, it would be an excellent time to unpack the behind-the-scenes drama. Tell us of its tortured production history. Well, yes, please chime in as I go because there's a long path, perhaps. Much like Bedtime Story was written specifically for three different actors who Mm -hmm. never played it, so too was this film written for Mick Jagger and David Bowie. What? (laughs) 
Our story starts in the year 1985, where Mick Jagger and David Bowie released the song and the music video, Dancing in the Street, which is their cover of the Martha Reeves and the Vandellas song. Beloved listener, at this point, stop the podcast. Go and watch the video. If you're driving, pull over to the side of the road and watch the video because it's wild. It's truly wild. But the video was so well received that the studios were begging for them to get a movie together. Because I guess that's how it was going in the 80s. So many buddy things that um, they just said, these two guys are in a music video together. Let's get them a movie. (laughs) And of course, unlike both of the two versions, Mick Jagger and David Bowie are both English. And uh, Mick Jagger, shockingly, is only four years older Hmm. than David Bowie. That doesn't really shock me. I don't know. Why didn't the movie get made with them? Here's how the connection gets made. Mick Jagger had written the theme song for the movie Ruthless People, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) which stars Danny DeVito and Bette Midler. Became a huge hit. Was written by Dale Laudner and was an original script uh so mick asked dale will you write a movie for me and david dale remembered watching bedtime story as a child on tv so he himself like free of anything else just bought the rights from stanley shapiro (laughs) to the script i guess with that ruthless people money and wrote the script for the two of them in mind. Then you get Frank Oz on board, you get on Ryan on board, they're about to do it, and David Bowie drops out to play Pontius Pilate in Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, which was also released in 1988. Whoa. So Bowie was just like, if Martin's calling, I gotta take the call. And they drop out. And now they've got the script, they've got the studio, they've got the director... So they say, okay, next duo, we got to have them, Eddie Murphy and John Cleese. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) This movie would be 10 times better if that was who it was. Sorry. That is the version of the movie I'm most interested in. Yeah, that would be so good. So that's who they court, and then Cleese drops. All of like the suggestions are in duos. Uh Like They're always trying to cast the duo, not sort of fill them in. Mm -hmm. So then they say, third option. Richard Dreyfus playing Freddy, Steve Martin playing Jameson. I was going to say I could see Steve Martin also playing Jameson. So that's interesting. Just like now, mm. if this movie were made now, I feel like Steve mm-hmm. Martin could have played the Jameson character. I think oh, at yeah. that time, Freddy was probably the better character for him just because of all the bits. But that's really interesting because I feel like Steve Martin could take that Jameson character and make him much bigger than Kane did. That's true. Not, that's it would just true. be different, yeah. not necessarily better. It would mm. just be a different approach to that character. But that's really interesting. Yeah, well, that was Oz's instinct as well. He wanted him for uh, Jameson. But Dreyfus accidentally prepared for Jameson. So at the audition, they just asked Freddy, or they asked Steve Martin, hey, can you read for Freddy? Because Dreyfus has prepared the wrong thing. And Oz ended up liking Martin in that role. And not liking Dreyfus. (laughs) I don't know what happened with Dreyfus. I saw nothing about that. Maybe Dreyfus didn't want it. Maybe Frank didn't want it. I don't know. Dreyfus definitely prepared for the right character because he is, to me, definitely more of Jameson than Freddy. Oh, see, I could see him playing Freddy. Like, I can see him selling that stuff because he's so good at playing serious. 
Maybe Frank Oz was just like, I'm saving this guy for what about Bob? Yeah. yeah. Called yeah. Him back Clearly in. no bad blood because he's in his next yeah, movie. Yeah. Well, the lead of his next movie. So Frank Oz wants Michael Caine because he says Caine is the nearest English actor to the effortless charm of David Niven, who played him in Bedtime Story. I would say that's probably true. David Niven was, in turn, Michael Caine's childhood hero, Aww. who Michael Caine looked up to as a kid. So he asks Caine if he wants to do it. Michael Caine says, why, why would you remake a flop? And Frank Oz says... Why would anyone remake a good movie? <laughs> Damn! Which I think is um, some sage advice. Guess what? They remade this one again. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think Frank Oz should have kept that in mind when he made Stepford Wives. But yeah, I think that's a good principle to have. And then Frank Oz offered Michael Caine a French villa to stay in for the three months of the shoot. And Michael Caine finally agreed to do it when he realized that the villa was right next to Roger Moore's villa. James Bond's villa, who was his close personal friend. That sounds like a sweet deal. That does sound And then they made the movie. That's incredible. So it was just because the house was next to James Bond's house? (laughs) That's why this movie got Michael Caine in it. That's incredible. Another of this movie's Star Wars connections, it's the original Rogue One, because the trailer for this movie focuses on a big sequence which isn't in the movie that they just shot for the trailer, uh, which I had seen and liked but didn't even really think about it. But it's this very funny sequence of them walking along sort of the street, talking, and then it ends with like a little old lady by the lake and Steve Martin pushes her into the water. And... uh, and there's, like, a kid eating cotton candy, and Michael Caine, like, shoves it, the cotton candy in the little kid's face, and it gets to the thing. That's hilarious. What is, is this? It was just the Wild West back in the 80s. You could advertise anything. You could say, you could, in between just mounds of cocaine, you could say, what if we shot a trailer for this movie, but it was all original content? <laughs> Here's something interesting. In Dale Launer's script, Mm. it is revealed at the end that Jameson realized immediately that Janet was the jackal. Oh. He's just been trying to play her anyway, but he ends up falling in love with her, not because she's such a lovely person, but because she's such a good con artist. And he respects her so much, and that's why he lets her get away to take the money and get away with it all at the end. Apparently that was shot, and the decision was made in the editing room to take it out of the movie as it exists. Give us the Donner cut! Uh, How does that immediately strike you, do you think? I think just based on what I think the moral... I mean, I think it would change what the movie is saying. Mm. I think it would change that girl power ending. You are right about that being the <laughs> I moral. mean, it would it would definitely change it because they say Steve Martin's character, Freddie says that at the beginning um, to Jameson on the train, that they're smarter mm-hmm. than us. So, like, we have to do this in order to get ahead, in order to... Like, they're always being smarter than us. So why don't we steal some money from them? And I think that connects so well to the end being Janet completely, completely going over their heads the entire time and being the best con artist as the woman in the movie. I, I mm-hmm. just le- I, I do like it more this way. I don't think it needs the love story to kind of undercut that. Mm. I think it's interesting how 
she kind of plays as if she's kind of into both of them. She lets them both think she is kind of at their disposal, at their uh, at an arm's length from both of them, you know, pretending to kind of be into each of them to get her way to get the advantage. So I think it works. I think it works much better. I think I would personally have not liked that script more. I think I like this one. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like it kind of weakens her character if he can call her out from the very beginning as like that being her. And it's the also then like why is he wasting time with Steve Martin at all? Cuz then he knows mm. it's not he would know that he's not even the real threat. So why is he even there? You know, yeah. like, what's the, what's the incentive for bringing him in? I really like the twist in general. I think it finally pays off. Like, the ending of the last movie felt so weird mm-hmm. because it feels like it should be a long con movie. Right. Like, so much of it is them conning and doing reveals, and it has to feel like at the end that the whole movie has been a con right. that someone is playing, you know? I'll also say that I had heard there was a twist ending. I was looking for it, and I did not suspect it. It totally worked on me. Really? In in the scene where she comes in and says, like, that Steve Martin stole the stuff and she's asking for the money, uh-huh. at that point, I started to be onto it, but I thought they were working together. Uh, uh-huh. I thought that Martin had put her up to it, mm-hmm. and they were going to get, like, double the sum, and they were working as a team. I did not suspect that she had been the Jacqueline I'd been playing them the whole time. It totally, totally worked. I'm also really interested to see... How they do that in the hustle? Oh, yeah. I have been. I have been actually thinking about that movie, about what it's going mm-hmm. to be like. Mm-hmm. I feel like they might have to change it up a good bit. It seems. I remember seeing the trailers. It seems like the same concept, but not as close of a remake as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was to Bedtime Stories. Mm-hmm. I feel like it just mm-hmm. can't be. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just interested because it is such a girl power movie. From what I've seen, Mm. the tagline is they're giving dirty, rotten men a run for their money. And so if, like, they're doing a movie that's sort of, like, women are so much better at being con people because men always think they're right. Mm -hmm. They're so much more better suited to the thing. Mm -hmm. That's also what this movie is doing. Yes. So does that movie end with them being beaten by a man? Or being beaten by another, a third woman who we don't suspect? Maybe that's, that's where that's where my money is on, hmm. or like a kid or something rips them off. This movie also feels like it immediately changes once there are cell phones, yeah, and social media, like and people be can Google. Oh God, I hope we don't get a bunch of shots of phones in this one. I hope not too. But also, like this this premise does not hold water after two thousand and four. <laughs> no, that's, you know? I mean that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, so something needs to happen. Maybe it'll be a period piece. I don't think so because I think the mark is like a uh, tech bro. Oh, that's what I know. That's about. fun, Laura. You mentioned this up top, but Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was also adapted into a Broadway musical of the same name in 2005 by Jeffrey Lane and David Yazbek, who also wrote The Band's Visit and uh, a personal favorite of mine, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Mm. The original cast is John Lithgow as Jameson and Norbert Leo Butts as Freddy. And then the the replacement cast, which I am much more interested in, is Jonathan Price as Jameson and Brian Darcy James Mm. as Freddy. Norbert Leo Butts is like a big Broadway star. Okay. Not a very current one. Like he was the original Jamie in the last five years, he was the in the original cast of uh, Wicked. 
Like he's kind of up there with the Kristen Chenoweth, you know, that whole age group of Broadway. Hmm. Not a very, I don't know why, his name doesn't carry through very often like Kristen Chenoweth does or, you know, but he Mm -hmm. is associated as an original cast member of a lot of shows, including this one. Did you listen to any other songs from it? I listened to <laughs> Roughhausen, Mish, Schaffhausen. Oh, yeah. We all listened to that together, didn't we? Yeah. We kind of listened through. I personally didn't know any of the other songs besides the one I sang. I don't think it's a very well-known musical. I don't think it's a very well-known movie series. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's what Cinnabobums is here to do, <laughs> provide you with that insider info on the lesser-known classics. <laughs> cool. Uh, if you want to check out that Broadway bootleg, feel free to, but don't hold us accountable, please. Uh, <laughs> so now we're going to play a little game. Woohoo! Woohoo! Well, this is going to be either a very easy or a very hard game. <laughs> okay. 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 What's the Are you game? ready? No, what's the game? <laughs> oh, the game is called Bums the Word. On this game, I will look up uh, this movie, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels 1988, on IMDb. I will scroll down to the bottom of the page and I look and see there's six movies in the like more like this section. And I'm going to try and get you all to guess them. Uh, you're working together. So- these are movies that IMDb thinks are closely related to this film. Yes. I think it tells us more about IMDb than it does about the movies. But uh, <laughs> the first one up is a, a 1987 comedy a romance. It stars a person who was also in this film. It is also an adaptation. Is it Roxanne? You are correct. It is Roxanne. Woohoo. All right. So uh, this next movie is uh, 1979. It is also somebody, another person from this movie was in this movie also. It's another person is in not Steve Martin. Oh, it, it was Steve Martin. Are these all Steve Martin movies? They're in fact all going to be Steve Martin movies. <laughs> the common theme here is actually all going to be Steve Martin. So let me just, uh, let me give you a better hint here. Pink Panther. Um, uh, no, so this is 1979. This is one of his first roles. Already discussed it this evening and said that we would never discuss it further. Here it is, back again. Could you, can you explain the premise a little bit? Uh, in this premise, a simple-minded, sheltered country boy suddenly decides to leave his family home to experience life in the big city, where his naivety is both his best friend and his worst enemy. Wow. It sounds a lot like... uh, Well, it sounds like a familiar story. Jerk. Even IMDb is cleaning up the uh, (laughs) content there. Yes, that is 1979's The Jerk. All right, the next movie up is another uh, Steve Martin (laughs) joint. In this film, three actors accept an invitation to a village... To perform their on-screen bandit fighter roles, unaware that it is the real thing. You said it's like three actors. Yeah, it's like a Bugs Life sort of a deal where they're. Is this <laughs> what? Oh, please, please. You know, it's like a Bugs Life sort of a deal where they they get called in because the people think they're real like warriors, and then it turns out they were just actors the whole time and they don't know anything, and then hilarity ensues. Is this Three Amigos? It is, in fact, The Three Amigos. All right. Now is when this game gets harder. Okay. This 
is another uh, Steve Martin comedy. It is also about con men. The name of this film is The Con Is On. It's wait. wait. <laughs> the name of the film? Sorry, not the name of this. <laughs> not the name of this film. <laughs> I was gonna say. I mean the tagline. The tagline of this film the is the con, con is, on. is on. Okay. It stars another person who is going to star in the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels franchise, but then did not. Uh, is this the movie with him and Eddie Murphy? Yeah, it is. I saw it in my prep, but I don't know what it's... Bowfinger? That is correct. Incredible uh, to me that you were able to pull that out of the old memory banks there. This is highly embarrassing after saying I was a Steve Martin fan. What I yeah. was really trying to say is that I love the movie Pink Panther. <laughs> and I also think Steve Martin is a beautiful banjo-playing woodland mm-hmm. <laughs> creature. Okay. <laughs> I really threw myself off by saying woodland. Woodland. But... <laughs> All right. In, in movie number five, also a Steve Martin comedy, also from the 1990s, also about con artists. <laughs> Wait, what year is it from? Also the 90s. I'm, I'm giving okay. a decade. It's from 1992. It also stars, it's like him and another big movie star in a movie about con artists. <laughs> I don't. Okay. Um... um... Who's the other actor? The other actor is uh, an actress known for being another actress's mother. Oh, is it Goldie Hawn? Is uh, Goldie Hawn. Wait. Uh, wait, guess. What is it about? Oh, it's a con? It's a con movie. Goldie Hawn, it's Steve Martin. I don't know. Okay. Is there any see, way you could get us to get the title or would we just not know it? Okay, yes. Okay. So this is like what I'm doing right now, actually. Podcasting? Hosting? Beard. Think more like House sitting? Yes. The sitters. You were much closer when you just said house (laughs) sitting. Baby sitting. Bank sitting? No, I mean, you were were like so close. The house sitter. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. And finally... It's a 1983 comedy romance, sci-fi. It stars Steve Martin and... Sci-fi. Little Little Shop? It is not Little Shop. He plays, in this film, he plays a surgeon who marries a femme fatale, causing his life to turn upside down. And then things go even more awry when he falls in love with a talking brain. <laughs> Uh, 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 yes. I, I, I'm telling you, the 1980s were a time to be in the film industry. Anyone could make a movie about anything. <laughs> I don't know, but I'd like to. This is a film, no doubt, cooked up by Noriega and the CIA over a mountain of the good white stuff. Uh, <laughs> this film is called The Man with Two Brains. <laughs> Okay. Wow. Wow. So that has been Bums the Word, our weekly quiz. Please feel free, if you have a better idea for a quiz, please feel free to at us on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or MySpace. And only those. Don't ask me what the handle is. You should know already. Fantastic. Laura, I've got a question for you. Yes. Do you have any... um? place where the people can find your voice find your words find your glorious spirit um sure if they haven't followed by now they probably won't 
as I have been on here three times. But my Instagram, all those Germany listeners, I'd love a follow. <laughs> my Instagram is at Laura, L-A-U-R-A, Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-E, Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. Also, if you want to send me any styro sludge, my address is, bleep this out. <laughs> but email cinema bums if you actually want it. <laughs> Send me all the styro sludge. Just get her uh, like a shipping container full of styro sludge. Ship it to the front. Get Melissa to bring it to us. She'll be fine. That's all. My projects these days: playing with styro sludge. <laughs> it's what I've been doing this entire podcast. I hope well, you can't boys, hear it. This is what it's come to then. Styro sludge. Some guests just want to hear the styro sludge. <laughs> okay, any final thoughts about this film before we roll it up? The main character's name is Freddie Benson, mm-hmm. which is the main, maybe not the main, one of the characters' names from the hit TV show iCarly. The guy uh-huh. who runs the camera, Freddie, his name is Freddie Benson. That's just a little factoid for you younger listeners out there. For That's your crazy. iCarly stands, <laughs> yeah. Because I feel that people who watch iCarly and people who listen to Cinema Bums are the same. <laughs> I think, the, yeah, the Venn diagram is yeah, just they a overlap. Single circle there. Um, yeah. So that's it. Just Freddie Benson. Wait, any <laughs> final thoughts on this film? A lot of the comedy in Oz's directing comes from his framing in this, uh-huh. which I thought was very interesting. He's got obviously like what really stands out is when he's got those naked statues in the foreground <laughs> and then the action happening in the background behind them. And he's sort of swiveling the angles and switching to different private parts on the So statues. that was the nudity. Because it's yeah, it yeah, was. It says PG for nudity I, uh, and like I don't know what else, but we were like and drug use. I can't remember the drug use. Was that just alcohol? Maybe I guess so, or maybe drugs. maybe just gen- <laughs> maybe just <general> assumed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they just meant while making this film. <laughs> But you've also got, you know, the nuns in the background of the one shot trying to get on the the airplane or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, that's funny, too. And uh, one shot I love is where um, uh, Jameson and Janet are eating breakfast in the foreground and you just see Steve Martin slowly and sadly roll <laughs> into frame across the back of it when he's doing his, like, I'm going to do it, I'm so sad moment. That is good. I also like that Michael Caine is manipulating these old rich women with the fear of communism. Oh, Very yeah. 1988 topic to be touching on. This movie ends. Here's a little, little cultural context. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but in 1986, two years before this film came out, a little something called Crocodile Dundee came out, and the world got Australia fever. No way. I mean, I cannot overemphasize how huge of a hit Crocodile Dundee was. It was like the the biggest movie of the year. Crocodile Dundee hosted the Oscars the year after. The restaurant Outback Steakhouse came into existence and took off because of the strength of Crocodile and Dundee. Everyone was talking about shrimp on the Barbie. And so this movie ends with a little bit of Crocodile Dundee humor where they make Michael Caine, make Michael Caine do an Australian accent. And yeah. he says, like, oh, I'll throw some shrimp on the Barbie there, <laughs> mate. 
is like kind of silly now, but would have probably been like either already outdated or like the funniest thing anyone had ever heard at the time because of Australia fever. Wow. Do you have any final thoughts about these dirty, rotten scoundrels? Yeah. (laughs) I am excited to see a new movie in this series. Um, To see one with a little different take on it, perhaps. It's been fun to go back and look at The Roots. I do think this is a better movie than the original. Oh, yeah. Uh, Happy to have watched it and it not age as terribly as some things that we used to think were funny to have. Although some of it still ages pretty bad. Um, (laughs) So, you know, whatever. Watch it. Don't watch it. Don't at me about it. My thoughts about The Hustle are... Like, there's no way it'll still be as problematic as this. But that was also my thought about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So right, right. I was like, people were pissed about this in the 60s. There's no way they're doing it again in 88. And they sure did. Damn. Well, until next time, join us again when we discuss the 2019 Anne Hathaway Rebel Wilson vehicle, The Hustle. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcast. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes this podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.